Now, that's a really short verse. So let's read that again, but let's do it together this time as a church. So it's Matthew 13, verse 44, and here we go. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now we're going to read this verse probably like five or six more times today, so keep your Bibles open. But for now, let's pray to hear God's word. Father, today your word is preached all around the world, calling people to believe and to repent. Father, we now join the many voices and pray that you would move among us today. We believe that your word does not return void, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts through the heart and leads us to you. Father, we pray that you would come and work in us now. Come and help our unbelief and come and heal our wounds. Prepare our hearts to meet you this morning. Through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. What must we do to be saved? What must we know What must we believe? Or the more pointed question, what is the cost? Jesus describes discipleship as taking up a cross and following him. He says that to save our lives, we must first lose them. Now, these are undoubtedly difficult questions. And as we consider this parable this morning, there is a temptation in our hearts to belittle the call of discipleship, to to water it down or to reinterpret what it means so that we would feel better about ourselves. But for the sake of our souls, I pray that this would not be the case this morning, but that when we consider the words of Christ, we would be drawn to repentance and drawn to our Savior. So to understand our text for the morning, we have to begin in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, During this time, Jesus is about 30 years old, and he hasn't started his public ministry quite yet. So he's been relatively quiet. But all this begins to change rather quickly. You see, shortly after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, John was arrested. And if we remember who John is, he was uh, Jesus' cousin. John was chosen by God to prepare the way before the Lord. The angel Gabriel had appeared to his mom and said, that John was going to be great before the Lord, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he would turn the people back to God. But John gets arrested, and the news reaches our Savior. The arrest of the one who is to prepare the way, the arrest of the one whose voice preceded the voice of God, a friend of Jesus captured to die. And Jesus says, now is the time. He says, now is the time. And the Gospel of Matthew records Jesus leaving the area and going to Galilee. And Jesus begins to preach. And the first public words of the Son of God that Matthew records is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. How important are these first words of Jesus Brothers and sisters, our Savior was on a mission. He spent 30 years 
preparing for just three years of ministry, and his first words are, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The proverb says that wise men have few words, but how much more the Son of God. Now, this is not our text for the morning, but it shows us how important this kingdom is to Jesus. It shows us what he was most concerned about. It shows us what occupied the mind of God, and therefore, it shows us what should occupy the people of God. It is not enough in the Christian life just to know Jesus. We must be about the things that Jesus was about. And brothers and sisters, Jesus was about the kingdom. And this is what chapter 13 in Matthew is what it's all about. There's eight parables that each teach us something about this kingdom. And if you don't know what a parable is, I have an easy definition for you before we jump into our text. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Parables are used to invite us into contemplation. They, they really beg us to meditate and hang on their words. They're not just something that we just read and say, okay, got that, you know, I'm going to move on. There's something to be studied. And I, I think it's worthwhile to spend a minute and think about parables. Because Jesus easily could have said, he could have said, you know, I'm worth it all, so give it up. And he could have said that and it would have been pretty easy. But that's not what he says. He tells us a story. And I think one of the reasons he does this is so that we... Um, You see, parables aren't something that they just teach us something or just change our understanding, but they're really there to change our minds about something. It's not just about um, communicating facts, but it's about changing the belief of the heart. A parable takes an earthly expectation and flips it 180 degrees. And parables do this by first pulling us into a fictional world and then telling us something about heaven. And the reason why I think we need this is because only in a fictional world can we begin to understand something about God's kingdom. Not because it's fake, but because the kingdom that Jesus preaches is so otherworldly, it's so alien, that we would not begin to understand it unless it begins in a story. And so by the grace of God, I hope that studying this parable, we will begin to understand the importance of this kingdom and the worth of this kingdom to Christ. So there are eight parables here. One parable is about how to enter the kingdom. There's another parable about the nature of the kingdom. There's another parable about how the kingdom grows. And if we were to take all these kingdom, all these parables together, what's a couple things we could say about this kingdom? Matthew understands the kingdom of God as God's reign on earth. It says that God is doing something, that he is moving, that he is building, that he's advancing his reign. It's the reality that God is reigning and man is not. That all things, no matter how they look, are being ordained for the kingdom of God. He understands the kingdom not to be of this world. It doesn't look like the kingdoms of man. It's a spiritual kingdom now and it will be physical later. The kingdom's war is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, but it's against the spiritual darkness. 
Its weapons are not carnal, but the kingdom is fought with the word of God in our hands, the love of Christ in our hearts, and the spirit of God running through our veins. We boast not in armies, but in a savior. And the kingdom's number one priority, the number one priority of the kingdom is that every man and every woman who walks across the face of this earth would come to a saving faith in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and enjoy God in all things. This is the kingdom that Jesus came to preach and this is the kingdom that we must be about. And so now, after all that prep work, I think we're ready to understand our parable for the morning. So let's look at Matthew 30, or 44 again. I'm gonna read it for us. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now we could get caught up in the trivial details of this parable, whether it's moral, whether it's not, but that's not the point of this story. Parables are about something that's like a big picture. And the big picture in this parable is what a man is willing to pay for the cost of this treasure. The question that is set before everyone who reads this parable is what would you do if you found the impossible? Is there something in this world that is actually worth everything that we possess? Can there really be something that is worth it all? And if there is, what would you do to get it? What lengths would you go to have it? What is so precious that you would stop the world in order to gain it? And in this parable, Jesus says that I'm that treasure. What he came to preach, what he gave his life for, what he spent three years of pouring out his heart over is the reign of God over the earth through the salvation of sinners like you and like me. And this morning... Jesus has two things to teach us that if we understand, it'll change our life. There are two things to understand and they will change our life forever. The first thing that this parable teaches is that gaining the kingdom is worth everything. Gaining the kingdom is worth everything. And the second thing is gaining the kingdom will cost everything. Gaining the kingdom will cost everything. So let's consider the first, that the kingdom of God is worth everything. In the Gospels, um, Matthew tells us a story. Soon after Jesus began to preach, um, Jesus' fame is growing rather quickly. And on one occasion, Jesus is teaching um, thousands of people about the coming of this kingdom. And he's teaching them, he's saying that I'm the bread of life, that if you come to me, you will never hunger and you will never thirst. But some of the people that called themselves his disciples begin to get frustrated at Jesus, saying his sayings are too hard, we don't understand them. And they begin to abandon Jesus. They begin to walk away. The ones who said that we are followers of Christ now say we're not following him. And Jesus turns to his original 12 disciples and he says, what about you? Are you gonna go as well? And Peter gives this great answer and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And in Peter's mind, there's no one else to turn to. 
He, he can't even tolerate the idea of turning away from his savior. The words of Jesus has satisfied his hungry soul. No other words have ever been spoken to him like the words of Christ. There is just something about them that even though he doesn't understand that everything Jesus says, he knew that his restless heart had finally found rest. Peter had found the treasure of God. And so our verse starts off with saying the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. This is a value statement. It's saying that the value of the kingdom is priceless. It's sufficient to make every poor person in the world rich for eternity. There is not a price tag with enough numbers to represent this kingdom. And it's rich beyond comparison because to have the kingdom is to have the savior. And brothers and sisters, there is not a greater treasure on earth than to possess Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ to possess you. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. He came to seek and save those who were lost. And you see, the Bible says that we are all like sheep that have gone astray. You see, we were born to reign with God, born to pour out our lives in service of his great kingdom, but in our pride, we built our own kingdom. Every one of us, whether you believe in God or not, have failed on your commitment to him. You have turned to other kingdoms. We rarely acknowledge his blessing. We prefer our name to be known rather than his name. We turn to food and self-help books before we turn to his word. We have claimed allegiance to other kings and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But the treasure of this kingdom is not that we have failed, but that he has succeeded. You see, Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn of all creation, who is the radiance of all God's glory, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, who is the beginning and the end, who is the object of the Father's love, who is the eternal son of God, that this Jesus came down to earth so that we may go to heaven. You see, every one of us had a Roman cross with our names upon it. And a broken and a dying Jesus climbs up to the cross that was designed for you and me and he dies in our place. If you believe in Jesus, church, you are now united to Jesus. That his death becomes your death. That his resurrection is now your resurrection. That his father is now your father and his kingdom is now our kingdom. And church, if Christ has a kingdom, that means that we have a king. No longer are we ruled by the kings of the earth, but we are ruled by the king of kings. You see, we serve a king who is not made great by his followers, but is made great in his own right, in his own merit. He has no guards to guard him, for he is the guardian of the cosmos. He has many, many heirs, but no successors. He has the highest throne, he has the richest crown, he has the largest dominion, and he has the longest possession. He makes sin to bow down before his throne 
so that you are no longer held in bondage to sin. He has promised you to deliver you from sin and death and the wicked that insults you. Are your hearts beating yet? Because he is the king of kings, there is no one left to fear on earth. Earthly kings only have power because our king has let them borrowed that power. Kings of the earth hide behind mountains, but our king moves those mountains. When we are in trouble, he has promised to plead our case. When we are surrounded, he surrounds our enemies. When we are doubting, our father is comforting. And what more, that he breaks the power of fear and death. You see, only in this kingdom that Christians have does our death mean our life. And only in this kingdom is our dying day, our wedding day. One of the greatest privileges that I have ever had in this life is to have a God who knows how ugly I am, who knows how unworthy I am, how slow of heart I am, and still loves me enough to die for me, loves me more than I could ever love myself, who doesn't remind me of my sin, but reminds me of my redemption, who comes looking for me when I wander, who walks beside me when I'm alone, who lifts me when I am down, and who's not ashamed to call me his son. Church, what kind of God puts his son on a cross but spares his adopted children? So I ask you this morning, is he worthy? Is he worthy in your hearts? Do you call him your king and your savior? When Jesus says that he is this treasure, when he says that the kingdom is worth it all, he's saying that I'm worth it all. He's saying that all that you possess and more, I am worth it. And you see, the fight of faith is fighting to see the value of this kingdom. You see, Satan wants to show you the crown, or he wants to show you the cross but not the crown. He wants to show you the hardship of Christianity. He wants to show you the sacrifice that demands Christianity. He wants to show you the burden of being a Christian. But he never wants to show you the blessings of Christianity. You see, Second Corinthians says that the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He never gives you a glimpse of heaven. He never lets you see the joy of being loved, the joy of having a clean conscience, the joy of being delivered from shame and death. He will never tell you of the Father's love of his children. He never lets you see the blessings. He keeps you searching the earth for treasure so that you never look to heaven. But your life, your life depends on you valuing this kingdom above everything. There is a war waging for our souls, and it is a war for what you value most. It's a war for what you find to be worthy. And you must answer this question for yourself. 
If everything I said is true, if everything that Christ said is true, what would you do to gain it? How hard would you fight to have it? And this is the question we finally turn to, is what is the cost? Let's pick up our Bibles again and read our verse. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, I want to ask the kids in the room a question, and maybe one of them could help me answer this question. Uh, does any kid in the room know what the tallest mountain in the world is? Might be a hard question. Any, anybody want to scream out the answer? Any parents want to help the kids? Somebody? Eli? Do you know the answer? No? Okay. Okay, how about, okay, Lily? Mount Everest. Thank you. Yes, Mount Everest. Now, can any adults tell me how high this mountain is? Maybe, maybe not. Huh? 29,000. All right, John. John got it. 29,000 feet, the tallest mountain in the world. Winds can blow over 200 miles an hour on the top of this mountain. Temperatures can get below, 80 de- below negative 80 degrees. The youngest person to summit the mountain was 13 years old. And the oldest person was 80 years old. Um, before 1999, about one in seven people died climbing this mountain. And it's not just the ascent up the mountain that's dangerous, but many people die on the way down as well. It costs between forty-five dollars and $80,000 to climb the mountain. $8,000 in gear, and it takes two months of your time to go to the base camp and then to summit the mountain. Two months of being away from work. And then before that, you have to spend six to nine months training to climb the mountain. It's like, who can do this? Um, But what's my point? Unless you're Wonder Woman, you don't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest, right? There is a cost. You must sacrifice the time. You must sacrifice the money to be able to train. You must be willing to part with $50,000 and convince your work that they can let you off for two months to go climb Everest just with the chance that you may not even make it, I wouldn't return to work. Um, You must be willing to die to go up to Mount Everest. And what happens if your guide dies? Because that happens all the time too. Is the selfie on Mount Everest worth your guide uh, dying for that trip? You see, the kingdom of heaven is actually very similar to climbing Mount Everest. There's a cost, and there's a substantial cost. But unlike Mount Everest, to have the kingdom, you have to lose your life. See, there's a price to this kingdom, and you must die that Christ might live in you. He must increase, and we must decrease. In other words, there's a condition to having the kingdom. There's a condition to having God as your king, a condition to having him as your refuge and your strength. And the condition is not money, it's not power, it's not intellect, but the condition is that you'd prefer the kingdom to everything else in this world. Jesus is asking us to reimagine what we value most, to reimagine what we hold most dearly. If you've ever read through the Gospels, there's just tons and dozens of verses of the cost of discipleship. 
Matthew 16 says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross to follow me. Luke 14, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is a high cost, but our parable jacks up that price by indicating that the call of discipleship is also a call to joy. When a man found the treasure, Jesus said that in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. The cost of the kingdom is paid with joy. Hebrews 12 says that for joy that Christ endured the cross. And it is for joy that Christians give up everything to follow this Jesus. And we don't give it up with clenching fists. We don't give it up um, with reservation. We don't give it up just because we're told to, right? We, we give it up in glad service to the king, knowing that he's going to give us more than everything we could have given. And it is an act of faith. And in the grand scheme of things, we get a lot more than what we give. We possess far more than the price paid. It means that we have to let go of everything outside of God. It is about total surrender in exchange for all that we are for all that Christ is. And just as the famous hymn says, what does it say? Simply to the cross I cling. What is it? Somebody help me out, Corey. What does the hymn say? Do you know what it is? Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. Thank you. I should have wrote that down, huh? Um, Yeah. So you see, oftentimes, though, we are so captivated by the glitter of this world that the treasure of Christ begins to fade from our view. You see, we set a high value on the visible things of this world and not a high value on the things that we cannot see. And the temptation in the Christian life is to avoid the claims that Jesus makes. Does he really mean that I have to pick up my cross? Does he really mean that I have to give all? And so we try to soften the sayings of Christ and we find the kingdom substitutes. A kingdom substitute is something that we do so we don't have to do the thing that Christ says. For example, some of us will say, I'll give money to the church so I don't have to evangelize because I don't like sharing my faith with others. We'll give money to adoption agencies sometimes because we say, I'm not called to do that. I don't have the patience to raise a child. We'll give money to the poor instead of talking to them, instead of maybe sharing the gospel with them or maybe taking them to get a haircut or maybe even giving them food because it's easy and we're Americans, right? It's not that giving money is unbiblical. It's that when you use it as an excuse for your obedience, is it sin. Many of us substitute church attendance as if you sitting here qualifies you for the treasure of Christ. Some of us prefer to fight in culture wars and political battles in the attempt to save a nation when we should be more concerned with saving a people. And others like to fight in church battles. We, we like to think that... Uh, you know, we prefer to, what the church looks like, what it tastes like, um, what it feels like more than who it should be like. Brothers and sisters, there's only one question, only one question in this world that has eternal significance, and it is who do you say that Jesus is? 
Who do you say that Jesus is? If I could ask your heart, if it worshiped Jesus, what would it tell me? Do your hands know that old rugged cross? What do your eyes say? Do your eyes spend more time looking at television rather than looking at heaven? Do your knees, be, do your knees bear witness to a life of prayer? Has your tongue been trained to sing songs to our Savior? Jesus says, what is a profit a man to gain the world but to lose his soul? And church, are you willing to lose earth that you may gain heaven? Are you willing to count the cost of following Jesus? What will you give up today? Will you give up your addiction to sexual sin? How about your love of money or your love of security? Your love of pride, will you be willing to give up having the last word in your arguments with your spouse? Are you willing to give up the praises of men? Are you willing to give up knowing that more people know your name and not the name of Christ? What are you willing to give that you might gain Christ? We started this morning by asking the question, what if you found the impossible? Is there something in this world that's actually worth everything that you have and more? And I'm here to personally tell you today that the impossible has been found, that God came down to earth, that sinners might go up to heaven. And now the question is, are you ready to count the cost? Are you willing to lose earth to gain heaven? Are you willing to pick up your cross and follow him? For a flash of joy, are you willing to give up an eternal weight of glory? You know, if there is anything in this world that I am sure of, it's that God is worth it all. And he is worth more than you could ever have. He will never disappoint you. He will never lead you astray. He will never let you down. He will never fail you. Ten years ago, Jesus found me and he saved me and he changed me and I know that what he's done for me he can do for you and it's a question of will you trust him to do that will you give it up will you give up that sin that you're clinging on to will you give up that relationship that's bringing you down that's taking you away from Christ what will you give up to follow God let's pray Gracious Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, uh, we understand, Father, that these are hard words, Lord, but your grace and mercy is more. Lord, help our unbelief. Father, be kind to our slowness of heart, Father. And Lord, we just pray that you would just give us a vision of your kingdom that we've never seen before. Lord, a vision that will carry us to the gates of eternity, Lord. Something that's going to train our minds to set our eyes on the things above and not on the things below, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen us, Father. That you would give us the strength of David, Father. That you would give us the strength of your son, Lord. That we may behold you and cling to that cross and cling to nothing else. Lord, give us faith and help our unbelief. And Lord, thank you for the grace to be able to stand here this morning to hear your word. 
and to receive it. And we ask this in the eternal name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.